All right, good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you. Uh, if you have a Bible, go to John 17. John chapter 17 is where we're going to be this morning. If you're new or visiting, just want to say uh, thrilled that you're with us. Glad you get to uh, join us today. This is a worship service where we get to worship Jesus Christ. We believe Jesus was the, uh, was the only man who would come and live as God uh, in his full humanity, full divinity, uh, without sin, that he would go to the cross and would die to pay our debt in our place for our sin and rise, giving us access to God, reconciliation with the Father forgiveness of sin, uh, and just redemption and joy. So uh, we do that by singing. That's why we sing songs here. It's why we sing the particular songs that we do, uh, which we want to remind ourselves of the profound nature of what Christ has done in and through his work. We also worship by sitting under uh, the teaching of God's word. That's why we're uh, studying the scriptures together in this portion to actually uh, serve as an act of worship to more fully align ourselves with what God has said, what God, how God desires us to think and feel and act and participate in his uh, work of redemption and remind ourselves of what he says about us as his um, children. We also uh, take communion each week or Lord's Supper based upon your background, how you've heard it or understood it. Um, this is not something that gifts righteousness to you, but it is something that uh, nourishes you by reminding yourself of the saving benefits that you have in Jesus Christ. So as we uh, take from the cup and uh, take the crackers, we remind ourselves that Jesus' blood was shed, that his body was broken so that uh, forgiveness of sin could happen, so reconciliation God could be done in the fullest sense. Um, it does not add favor with you. It doesn't take you from like JV to Varsity in the kingdom of heaven, uh, it is something that is a meal Jesus gave as a gift, and we celebrate it rightly in that way. Um, and finally, we, we give as a people because uh, we love being generous because God was generous in giving us himself in the person and work of Christ. We give on the silver boxes on the back wall, and I always say, if you're not a regular attender or member, um, please do not feel compelled or inclined to give. We want you to know Jesus and worship him, know him, love him, and serve him with your whole heart. Um, we normally take books of the Bible and walk through them. We're going to hit first. Uh, John in about two weeks, uh, beginning of April, we'll start First John. We took four weeks here uh, just to look at the life and prayer of Jesus. Jesus was uh, the most perfect man who ever lived, therefore he prayed perfect prayers, therefore we can learn how to pray as a church by watching Jesus pray. And so um, we're going to be in uh, the high priestly prayer today and finish the second half of it next week. Uh, let's pray, then we'll dive in. Father, thank you that we have the scriptures. Thank you that um, that you did come as God in human flesh. Uh, thank you that salvation can be had. Thank you that forgiveness of sin can be found. Thank you that joy uh, can be full in our hearts because of Christ. Uh, Father, would you continue to draw men and women to yourself through the preaching of your word, through the listening and understanding of what it is that you have said in the scriptures, how you speak to us through our conscience, creation, and Christ. Uh, but we rejoice primarily that we have the Bible right now uh, to look at and sit under together. Father, would you do um, the things that only you can do in this place uh, through the power and enablement of your Holy Spirit? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What we did was we uh, two weeks ago looked at the Lord's Prayer, learned some particular aspects. The disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, uh, Lord, teach us to pray. So we learned that, that prayer is not something that you grow up just knowing how to do. It's something you learn how to do. So Jesus uh, taught us and instructed us. And then we looked at the prayer of Gethsemane last week, which was just a profound prayer to see how we pray through trial, pray through darkness, pray through tribulation, pray through sorrow, pray through grief. Uh, we saw Jesus himself do that. And then uh, now we're going to look at the high priestly prayer in John 7. 
17. Now, um, where Jesus stops, it's in the gospel according to John, and John is telling this beautiful uh, truth-telling story of Jesus Christ, and, and John's the only one who records this. It's one of, I think, the longest prayer that Jesus prays. It's recorded in the scriptures, and um, it's so rich with theology, with insight, with um, just notes, and uh, that commentaries and books have been written extensively just commentating and talking about this particular prayer that Jesus prayed. And um, where John sets us up is, um, you saw in Gethsemane last week that really Jesus was in the heartbeat of uh, the wrath of God was going to be poured out on him and how he prayed through the grief and trial and, and just weight of that. This week is more, betrayal has not yet happened. It's about to happen. The cross is on the horizon. He's, he knows he's going to be falsely tried and falsely accused and falsely condemned and that he's going to uh, suffer and willingly take on a bloody, brutal crucifixion. His own mother's going to watch it happen. This is all coming, uh, and Jesus stops to pray in this moment. Um, Jesus stops to prepare himself for what is to come, and then he starts praying this amazing, uh, beautiful prayer. And so we're going to look at part of it this week, and we'll look at the rest of it next week. So um, looking at uh, John 17, you can basically, uh, if you're wondering, just, just chop it into three categories. Jesus prays that, that God would help him, then Jesus prays that God would help us as his disciples, then God would help uh, evangelistically uh, as people watch him and watch his body be drawn to him. So it's three categories himself, then his disciples, and then others. So uh, verse 1, here's what Jesus says. When G, or John writes about Jesus. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Um, not surprising, if you've been with us for the last two weeks, he starts the prayer as Father. He taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Start your prayers approaching God, knowing that he's a good Father, that he is someone who's available. He's someone who welcomes you into his courts, not because of you, but because you have a mediator Christ that has made a way for you, right? So we have access to Dad. Uh, Romans 8, Galatians 4 says, our spirit now cries out, Abba, Father. That's what naturally groans within us as we pray to talk to the Trinitarian God that we worship. And so here he starts with Father, um, and we see as we examine the prayer life of Jesus that he repeatedly does this. Um, now here's the thing, because uh, most prayers and sermons and instructions on prayer uh, lead you to guilt and shame um, that I've heard. So some of you guys just feel so beat up. You don't pray like Jesus, you should. If Jesus had to pray, how much more do you need to pray? Hey, you sleep in, he woke up early. You need to get yourself together. So you leave just feeling guilty, shame-filled. No, um, prayer in the scriptures lays before us. It's anticipatory, it's joyful, it could come to him with needs, and we come to him in hope. Uh, that's how you long to drive yourself into prayer. That's how the scriptures get us to drive into prayer. We become needy, hope-filled, anticipatory, joy-filled, understanding that life is going to be given from the one active agent in this whole thing. Um, and that's why as you see this prayer of Jesus, he reminds us the answer to pray is not to focus on you and how good you pray or how bad you pray, but on the one you're talking to. You're talking to Father, talking to God, right? Because the other way, guilt and shame leads to this weird place where you're like, well, I'm a terrible Christian, might as well give up on prayer. Or pride and arrogance says, I'm really good, want me to teach, right? Both are bad. So you don't focus on you, you focus on him. That's what Jesus shows us. Hey, hey, Father, I'm talking to him. He's, he, I mean, he's available. He's, he's letting me in. He's not too tired. He's not too weary. He's not too annoyed. He's not too distracted. He, he invites me in as his children. God's modeling that as he says, Father, so we are to pray out of need, hope, joy, not guilt and shame. And he says, Father. Now, he continues to say, Father. Now, this, I think, really helps with a lot of the philosophical questions and objections about God. 
Um, Is he loving? Is he intimate? Does he care? Is he sovereign? Is he just? Is he good? Will he do what's best? Yes, because ultimately, one way to say this among many things is he's father. Yes, he's good. Yes, he cares. Yes, he intervenes. So if God is father, who already knows everything and can do anything, we should talk to him about everything. Amen? That's what Jesus is demonstrating. That's what we've seen in Gethsemane. We saw that in the Lord's Prayer. Right? If our God is a father now, that transaction happened where we're no longer orphans, we're his kids, we're no longer enemies, we're his friends, we're no longer people under wrath, we're under mercy and grace. If, if all that has culminated, all that has happened, that what we have here is amazing and he, he knows everything, he can do anything, man, I should bring everything to him because I have full access. It's a good place to be. And Jesus, in his deepest, darkest, most trying moments, demonstrates that by saying again, Father, you're my father. And the Trinitarian aspects of our God. And he says, the hour has come. The hour has come. Uh, Jesus is obviously talking about the hour of betrayal, uh, the hour of false arrest, the hour of false trials, the hour of his bloody, brutal, murderous crucifixion. He knew the eternal plan. So he knows what's coming. And he's saying this hour is coming. So the question for Jesus is not if that hour comes, it's how are you prepared when the hour comes? Um, so, so this is why I've said this before. It is totally right and helpful appropriately to pray preemptively. Like, Lord, prepare me for that hour. Because listen, man, Jesus promised there would be suffering. Jesus promised there would be trial. Jesus promised that life, this side of glory, would not be the easiest life. It would be the best life with Jesus. And, and only he sustains you. Only he invigorates you. Only he, he transforms you and humbles you and matures you. Only he does all those things through his sovereign good work as your Father in heaven. So we pray preemptively, hey, Father, when that hour comes, would you use me to honor you? Would you use me? Would you help me to be obedient? Would you help me not to crumble? Would you help me not to rely on on me, but rely on you. Now listen, I, I don't know what that hour is for you. I, I, I don't know. It takes different shapes and forms. I don't know when that phone call will come that'll bring you to the floor. I, but I can tell you, it's coming. Different for everyone. The hour. What do you do when the hour comes when you hear your spouse say, I've committed adultery? Like, what do you do when you hear it's cancer? What do you do when you hear you're fired? What do you do when you hear that the children that you loved raised now is rebelling against Jesus? How, how do you preemptively pray, hey, when the hour comes, God sustain me. God, help me to walk faithfully. Use me. How, right, this is what Jesus is showing. Jesus, no, it hasn't happened yet. And he's saying, hey, hey, the hour is going to come. God, help me in those moments. A beautiful, beautiful prayer that Jesus prays. Because, listen, there is a popular concept that uh, if you have enough faith in Jesus, you don't need to live or look like Jesus, which is just bizarre. And so here Jesus is showing, no, the hour comes. Uh, The hours will come. God is good. God will give you joy-filled days, and he will bring about hard days, right? All about by making you mature in Christ, right? And learning more about his character and nature and more fully enjoying his sovereign goodness as your dad. That's what Jesus is showing us and revealing here. Um, What happens on the day that you feel your friend ends up like Judas, right? Who betrays you. And Jesus says, I'm praying because the hour is at hand. I know what's ahead, and I need my father. I need my God, Right? That's, what, that's what he's saying. Um, because you'll see often when people hit that hour, they, pray, they say, God, uh, I didn't ask for this. 
Or God, I asked for this and you didn't give it to me. So what naturally happens is they just, I don't know, they bail, they find some other religion and then they just think they have a blank check to sin like crazy because God owes them now. That's not what Jesus does, right? Uh, when Jesus, when darkness comes, when, when trial comes, he runs to God in prayer. Where do you go when that hour comes? Have you prepared yourself to, through disciplines, through habits now or habits later, to run to God in prayer? Or do you run to your other functional gods, idols, and identities? Right? Do you run to anger? Do you run to bitterness? Do you run to sex? Do you run to self-medication? Do you run to gossip? Do you run to work? Do you run to... And Jesus shows us the most protective, preemptive, helpful place to go when the hour is at hand is to go to prayer to God who is our Father. That's the most relieving place to go. And then look at what he says. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Jesus is asking this. God, enable me to honor you. That's what he's saying. Enable me to to obey you. Enable me to, to, to submit to you in a way that brings glory to you. Help me to suffer well. Help me to be betrayed well. Help me to die well. Help me to do all these things well where people see you're good and sinners ultimately are brought to a good, saving, loving, just God. That's what he's praying here in this, this amazing, amazing prayer. So, so he's basically saying, if you're going to suffer, you might as well not waste it, but use it and redeem it. I mean, how often do we take suffering and we, we blow it off on others or we pour it out on others or we self-implode or he says, no, bring it to God. Bring it to God and the Father. Dump all of that out and receive help from God. I mean, is that not the Christian life? I'm receiving help from God. Can't do it today, I'm receiving help from God. When the hour comes, I'm receiving help from God. Man, the church is great. God has given us each other to care and, and do everything, but we're all receiving our ultimate help from God so that we can care. So if you're not receiving help from God, you can't care for others. Or you can't care for others well. I love that he says, glorify me so that I might glorify you. He's saying in adversity, there's opportunity to respond in such a way in trial where God is glorified, where God's magnified, where the people around you begin to learn about how good and great God is. And so we pray like Jesus, right? God, help me to glorify you. That's how we pray. I hope my life to magnify you. I mean, what that means in its most basic form is just to enjoy God, to celebrate God, to worship God, to magnify God. And Jesus is reminding us through his prayer life what the scriptures will unpack for you from beginning to end. What he's reminding you in his prayer is that God created all things and exists so that we might enjoy and magnify and glorify him. And then he gets his glory and we get our joy, right? So God gets praised and we get satisfied. He's, he's showing you in his prayer how God's designed the universe so that as you pray like him, you're sharing in God's design for the universe. Now, here's, here's, why, here's why I say this. And I was just having a chat after the first service with, with a brother. It was so encouraging where he was like, wow, I, I, yes, I didn't even realize this was subconsciously woven into me. So I don't know that I've prayed this in the last four years of being a Christian. Because here's why this is so important. Um, I believe that many of us have been taught, and whether consciously or subconsciously, whether intentionally or unintentionally, um, you have been taught that when God used his infinite wisdom and his infinite knowledge and his infinite glory to create, that he did so because he was lonely and needed humanity. 
right? So, so, so God predominantly creates because God who dwells in infinite perfections, in infinite glory, in infinite worth, in infinite stability, in infinite community with the Trinitarian self. He does not need a finite human with a puny brain to add to that, right? So, so he did not design you for community with him. He did not primarily create you because he was lonely. And here's why this is so important to see in Jesus' prayer and in the scriptures. The reason this is so important to see is if Jesus responds to loneliness and creates a finite humanity and we're primarily then created for fellowship, this makes you the center of this whole thing. This makes you the center of life. This makes you the center of your existence. This makes you the center of the, 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 the cosmos, right? Because Jesus orbits around me because he needed me to fill a void. And, and here's why I'm saying that is, is that's why, listen, you got to understand, we say over and over and over, we exist predominantly, not so much that we would be saved or lost, but first, that God would be magnified and glorified through what he's made. And we share in that glory. That's why you will look throughout this book and not find you. Like, I'm always looking. You'll find a name that's your name, but it's not to talk about you. Everyone in Scripture is to talk about Jesus that magnifies God. So as God does his works and the Father magnifies the Son and the Son magnifies the Father, and we get magnified in the work of him saving sinners, we get caught up in that glorifying his name. And then you get joy, which is a good deal because everyone's after joy. Real joy. I'm not talking about your happiness. Happiness is fleeting. You've learned that. Okay, I'm not talking about that fleeting emotion when all the planets align just right for you. You're happy and you smile. I'm talking about deep, dark day sustaining, worship God glorifying joy. We're after that, right? So, so here, here's what you see in the, in the end. What if the story in here is not about you? Like what if you're not the point? You're not the point. So if you're not the point, then God shows us in this that yes, there are, commands and demands from God that should be looked at and examined and joyfully submitted to. Not saying those are not in there, but I'm saying as you look at the text here, man, otherwise all you do is look at the book solely about, I don't know, should I cuss? Should I drink or not? I don't know, who should I marry? What job should I take? I don't know. I mean, does God like that, not like that? I mean, hey, that's fine. Those are going to be effects of your salvation with Jesus, but you're going to see from cover to cover that God creates, God sustains, God saves, God redeems, God finally restores all so that his name might be exalted. You can't get away from it. Otherwise, you're reading a different Bible. I don't know. You got the Quran in your hand or something else. I don't know what, what thing you're looking at. That's what you'll read in here. So here's what's great. God lines us up. God shares this with us. And now all of a sudden, it's beautiful because you're released from you being in control, you having to satisfy your own soul, you having to kind of organize everything in your life, all your stresses, all your anxieties, all your cares in just such a way that, man, okay, now, now we're, we're good. Now I can help God do his thing. No, you, you got to need any help. You desperately need help, and you need a God who is already fully existing in worth and identity and value so that he does not need creation. Otherwise, you have a God way too small. You have a God who's not worthy of worship. Now, now how does this affect day-to-day -day prayer life? Man, it is massive. It's, I would argue it's everything. It's everything because just like Jesus, you're praying from a place where your worth, your status, your virtue has 
nothing to do with what you do, but why. So whether you're a CEO, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a janitor, whether you're in the architectural world, whether you're in the stock market finance world, whether you're a pastor, whether you're, man, the status is not the big thing, the God's glory is the big thing. That's why Colossians says, doesn't matter what you do, do it all to the name and renown of God. Right, glorify his name, find ways to magnify his name. That way, man, it's status, not JV varsity. It's, man, we're all on the team and we're all serving this grand end. So now we pray from this place. In the Old Testament, he's gardener. In the New Testament, he's carpenter. It doesn't matter about what he does. It's to glorify God. What's amaz- here's, what's, here's what's amazing about this. Is the more you pray this way, the more it transforms you and everyone around you. Like, so as you're, as you're reading Jesus pray, I mean, glorify me, and only Jesus can say that, by the way, okay? You can't be like, hey, God, glorify me. No, no, no. You say magnify you, right? Jesus can say that because he's God. He shares in the Trinitarian attributes. So he says, just as you're reading, glorify your son so the son might glorify you. As we're reading that and getting caught up in that, it's transforming us, and then it transforms people around witnessing you, asking your God to do that. They see a humility. They see a meekness. They see a self-forgetfulness. It's amazing what happens as we pray in this way. I mean, as culture, culture says, don't you want to avenge them, get back at them? Don't you want to hate God, right? So culture will tell you, this prayer preserves us from becoming like the person who sinned against us and makes us more like Jesus. No, God, magnify your name in this pain, right? We say, like Jesus, right? Help me in this. We waste suffering when we pour it out on others. We redeem suffering when we bring it to God. I love you as your pastor, but I want you to know that the hour will come, and I don't know what it is. I'm not saying it's, it's, again, the difference is different for everybody, but God is good, and God sustains, and God works in that, and that's why, you know, when you realize the hour comes, the, the answer is, the question is not where will you go. It, it was where will you go. Will you go to God? Will you ask him to get through it in a way that honors him and, and helps you redeem it? Is that what you're asking? Is that what you're pleading with God to do? Because look at what he says in verse 2. It's amazing. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, Jesus is reminding you in this prayer, right? He's reminding you in this prayer. He's saying, I'm God over everyone. Remember, God's Trinitarian. God the Father gives God the Son authority over everything, over all peoples, all times, all nations, all languages, Democrat, Republican, Independent. Jesus has authority over everyone and everything. And what's amazing in this text is it's not just authority over, right, all peoples and places and tribes and times. It's he's also been given authority to give salvation, to give eternal life, to give forgiveness of sin. And he does give it to all races, to all tribes, to all tongues, to all religions. He draws them out of those places, calls him the one true living God through the one true living Jesus Christ to the one true living way of salvation. He conforms them, transforms them, and uses them for his glory. He's doing it. So he's saying, hey, as as I'm praying that I would continue to do this, Father, help me to do what you're asking me to do, we're sharing in that same prayer. God, help us to participate in drawing people to the glory of God through using our lives as image bearers of Jesus to predominantly not waste our suffering, but use it and redeem it. (laughs) 
so that all tribes, all tongues, all peoples, all places might be brought into the fold of God through the one road, Jesus Christ. It's amazing. Now, as I was looking at this, I thought, when I speak of eternal life, some of you are not interested in heaven because heaven to you is quite hellish. Um, When you think of heaven, you think that you're going to be wearing a diaper, watching angels playing a harp all day. Like, that's hellish to me. I don't want, I don't want that. That's, there's no desire in me that desires that. Listen, if you've been taught that, that's culture's view of heaven. We don't have time to un- unpack it, but, but here's what I want you to ask yourself. When you're thinking eternal life, most of you automatically default to that. So according to Jesus, what is eternal life? Verse three. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing Jesus. Did you know that? That's what it literally means to have eternal life? Now listen, the Bible records and, and sets before us like, like architectural and, and clear ways of what heaven will look like, new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth, recreated, work and never toil, eat food, never be hungry. Uh, there are beautiful aspects, but, but when Jesus talks about heaven, heaven is not so much about a place, but about a person. Eternal life is not so much about a future existence, but about a person. It's being connected to God. It's being relational with God. It's having communication with God. Now it's being restored to the broken, fractured relationship with God through sin, being restored to now where I can communicate and talk to God through prayer. Because Jesus is life. Like he's the essence of Life. Colossians 1 is going to say that he created all things, he sustains all things, he's in and through all things. So if you don't have Jesus, you don't have true life. Like you can't have true joy. Listen, uh, every other thing you go to is a bankrupt system. Right? You, you, unless it's Jesus, Jesus is the only one who can give you the true essence of life. He made life. He created life. He sustains life. He is one with God, co-equal, co-eternal. He says this throughout the scriptures, because he is that, when you meet Jesus and have Jesus, you're actually having and receiving eternal life. It's not just a future dated event when you get raptured or when you pass. It's now. Like, you have eternal life now. So important that as we pray, we're praying, reminding ourselves that we have eternal life now. That we pray from a place of victory, I always say. You're praying with Jesus, not that you only get to see Jesus. This is a massive theological construct that's so important for us to to see here that Jesus is the essence of life. He created life. Therefore, those who have Jesus and are connected and communicating with Jesus have eternal life. Now, why is that so important for us to understand? It's so important to understand because, because otherwise you're gonna be tempted to chase something that the Bible's not calling you to chase. Like, what does Jesus promise you for following him? Jesus. What does the gospel promise you? Like, like if you repent of sin and turn to Christ, what does it promise you? Jesus. 
I mean, he is forgiveness. He is salvation. He is righteousness. He is imputation. He is atonement. He is your debt. He's everything. Like, you get him. The good news of the gospel is you get God. Like, that, that's it. If you're your first time in a church, there you go. Scantron answer A. You get God. That's all it is. You get all the theologically confused. That's what the good news is, man. You get him. If you get anything short of him, that's a bankrupt gospel that'll never sustain you and is something honestly you should quite walk away from. So Jesus says, because is this not all that he continues to promise us? What does he say in the New Testament? Hey, you abide in me, I'll remain in you. What was it saying the Great Commission, Matthew 28? Yeah, go make disciples, baptizing, teaching them to observe. Man, and I'll be with you always. The whole promise, the whole beauty of what he said is that you get him. Now the question is, is that enough for you? Like, is that enough for you? I mean, Jesus' promise to you, brothers and sisters, is himself. Jesus promises you Jesus. And he says, I am the essence of all things. That's why in Colossians 1, just go home and read that chapter where it talks about who he is. John 1, read that chapter. He's not like your, your deposit to get something. Like, he is the reward. Like, like so, so is that enough for you? Because I... I see some of you come in here and go, and I'll talk to people all the time. Well, what, 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 do, I, what do I get from following Jesus? Jesus. And they're like, no, no, I know that. Like, I know I get forgiveness of sin. I know I get eternal life. I know I get reconciliation with God. I know I'm no longer an orphan. I'm adopted as his own son and daughter, loved as a, by a perfect father. I know that I'm rescued from my own sin. I know that I'm rescued from eternal wrath being poured out on me for all of eternity. I know I am a co-heir with Christ, that I inherit all that Christ has is worth more than the world's stock exchange and bank account. I know that. What else? I'm like, I don't know, man. I got nothing else to give you, bro. I... Like, what other, what other gospel do you have? Right? I mean, what, what, what else are you looking for? That's why Peter says, man, where else am I going to go, man? You, you have the keys to eternal life. I mean, some of us, I, I don't know what you believe God has promised you. Now, can God intervene in the life of your children? Absolutely. Can God heal you? Absolutely. Should we be confident he will? Absolutely. Should we pray and ask him for those things? Absolutely. Should we shake our fist to the heavens and get furious when he doesn't answer the way we want? No. We're small humans with puny brains. In those moments, we default to his infinite wisdom and our finite wisdom. In those moments, we submit to a good father who knows the whole scale of our life, the whole just scheme of the landscape. He stands in the future, not only knowing the future, he welcomes us into those moments. But that's how we respond, that's how we act. So in those moments, when it doesn't work like we want, we default to him, we don't default to us. He has always been and always will be. He knows all and understands all. So we remember this in prayer. We find encouragement like Jesus in trial and perseverance, knowing we have eternal life now. Colossians 3, I love that text where it says, um, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. When Christ, who is your life, that's talking about present. 
You have Jesus now. He's there now. The sovereign king, made man, who's ascended, reigning and ruling at the right hand of God. He is yours. That's profound for us. And this is why he prays in verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus says, I knew exactly what I was sent to do and I did it. He became man to live the life we could not live, to pay the debt we could not pay, to give the gift of eternal life we could not otherwise obtain. Right? He says, I did that. I'm going to do that. And Father, I've done what you've asked me to do. I've said what you asked me to say. We're landing the plane. I'm about to go to the cross. Help me to do this also. Help me to glorify you well also in my suffering. Not only in my preaching and teaching, not only in my healing and ministry, but in my suffering. And then he, then he says this. Glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world existed. That's another massively important theological construct. Um, because one of, the, one of the accusations against Christianity is that um, Jesus never believed or said he was God, and then some weird, you know, just kind of petty humans came along later and just added it in. Um, he repeatedly and prolifically said he was God. In fact, that's what got him killed. I don't understand, right? That's like historical. So, okay, so, so he claimed to be God, right? That's what got him crucified. So here what you're seeing in this text is one of many examples on many occasions where Jesus says here, give me the glory that you share with me in the beginning. He's not trying to like sideswipe you with some mystical, hey, try to figure it out. He's just pointing back to Genesis 1 in the beginning. It's when you, I had full authority with you. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created Let us create man in our own image, right? Trinitarian God. He was there creating, sustaining, giving forth. So for him to say something like this, share with me the glory that we shared in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus is saying I was there at creation. I'm co-equal with God. I am God. I'm creator. I'm sustainer. There's no beginning or end to me. That's what he's saying. And then he says, share with me the glory we shared at the beginning. Glory is preeminence, prominence, power. Man, it's just the goodness of God unleashed. This is why Isaiah says, or God says through Isaiah, I share my glory with no one. No one's like me. Humans are not like me. Animals are not like me. The created universe is unlike me. I stand in my own category, in my own camp, for my own glory, in my own name, right? God's in his own place. And then he says, I love this. So him, him saying these things is to say, I'm creator, I'm God, I'm the God of glory. It's just another way of saying, I'm God. He said he's God. And he's saying it all in this, I love this, to prepare himself for his suffering. So Jesus' prayer for himself is this, let me suffer in such a way that people know that you're a good, loving, merciful, just Father. Help me to suffer in such a way that sinners might trust you and see myself as Savior, submitted to God my Father. He wants us to reverberate out. He wants his life to be a a testimony, a a just reverberating megaphone to the world of how good his Father is and how kind his Father is. And listen, I say this because here's how this circles back to verse 1 and all connects. Here's how it loops back. In John 17, where you get to verse 5, then you can go back to verse 1. This is how you kind of see it come, come back in full circle. 
in the Trinitarian relationship with God, God the Father glorifies the Son, and then the Son glorifies the Father, and then Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, does the works of bringing salvation to sinful men and women, and then we get to share in that glory and glorify the Father so that his name might be praised, so eternal life would be given to all who he will call as we, as agents of his grace, go share, tell, preach, and love others towards repentance of sin. It's amazing what he does here. See, the Christian life, I love what he's showing, is, is that's how we get to glorify God. So when we fail, we get to repent. It glorifies God. When we get sinned against, we get to forgive. It's opportunity to glorify God. Look how forgiving God is. Not how forgiving I am. Um, we are given opportunity to glorify God. So the question for the Christian is not, what do I think? What do I feel? What do I want? The question is always, how can I glorify God in this? How can I obey in such a way? How can I honor in such a way? How can I trust in such a way that God's name might be glorified? I might shrink back and decrease, and he might increase. That's always the question for the Christian. Now, you know what's great about all this is this is the pathway to freedom. Like even praying this way and even understanding your life this way is the pathway to freedom. Because if, if Jesus experienced the most freedom any human will ever experience because he's God, he's not bound by anything, then, then he's instructing and showing this is the way also that we can follow in his footsteps to true freedom. Because here's what happens. We think we know what God is doing even though we don't. We think we know what we need even though we don't. We think we know what is best even though we don't know what is best rather than what would glorify God. So what happens is we make our lives more difficult, witness more corrupt, and others more confused. And here in the middle, Jesus is showing us we remember that God is good, that he's leading me to life, that he gives perfect counsel, that he gives himself in Christ, that he leads me not in temptation, that God is great, that God is glorious, and if my life gets caught up in that, I get my joy. That's, that's what he's showing. Now, here's why I say this. I say this because if you look later, which we'll talk about next week, verse 13, he says, I'm saying everything to you so that you would have joy. I'm praying this way. He's talking about us. He's praying for us. That's insane. If you read John 17 through the lens of, in that middle part where he's praying for the disciples, is you and me, you know that Jesus prayed for you. Before the cross, he prayed for you. And he's still praying and interceding from the throne, right? using the Holy Spirit to utter groans that we don't even know sometimes how to articulate prayers. He does that in this. But listen, um, I'm saying this because he says, they, I'm saying all these things, they might have joy. The mark of the Christian is joy. That's what you're seeing in the prayer life of Jesus. You're seeing joy. Not happiness, Interesting, we live in a nation that is committed to the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, yet everyone is self-depressed, living on medication, questioning whether their life is worth living. So, so I'm not talking about happiness. You can pursue happiness, and you'll find it for a day, or an hour, or a minute. You won't find dark day sustaining, worship-creating, God-exalting, glorifying joy. Outside of the gospel of Christ, so Jesus says we can have joy, and our joy is to contemplate and know the person and work of Jesus. Our joy is when we realize our life was made to glorify God. 
Like that's when you start finding joy in unexpected places. It's a beautiful thing. So it's important to understand that Jesus is helping you and me see the pathway to joy in our prayers. That's what he's doing. That's what he's showing you here, right? We, and because we're not talking about happiness, where happiness are those good-natured emotions, I told you where you feel all the right circumstances according to you have all aligned, right? Spouse is doing Ephesians 5, kids are doing Colossians 3, all the Amazon orders show up just as you ordered them, birds are chirping, no one's sick at the school, no one's ill on the playground, right? Everybody's just healthy, wealthy, sustained, right? That's not what I'm talking about, man. Happiness can be robbed from you in a moment. Right? I mean, just, it's, I mean it, it doesn't matter what happens. So, so because we've all had that day where a large chunk is going well and then one piece of news takes you to the floor, happiness is the first thing to go. But Jesus shows us joy can't be taken. So here's what he teaches you in this prayer. He's teaching you to avoid the pursuit of happiness over the pursuit of joy in your prayers. Scriptures will, will say what? God has not come to make you happy. He came to give you joy and joy of the full. Acts 7, Stephen, first martyr, after Christ has risen, Pentecost, 3,000 people come to Christ. The, the church is growing, yet persecution's growing, and, and, and Stephen's there, and he's, he's suffering. He's being you know, stoned, and, and what does he do? He says, man, Father, forgive them. Right? They don't even know what, what they're doing. I mean, just, just show them the same mercy and forgiveness you've shown me. Man, that ain't happiness. That's deep rooted, gospel-shaped joy. You got, I mean, the disciples, right? You read about them in Acts, man. They're, they're beaten, thrown in prison, right? And then eventually they get out. They leave happy. They leave rejoicing. You got Paul, stoned, beaten, left for dead out the city walls of Jerusalem, walks right back in. That isn't happiness. That's, I've got joy because something's driving this thing because there are more people in there. I want to know the name and renown of Jesus. So there is this amazing reality you'll see in the scriptures where joy cannot be taken and happiness can, and Jesus teaches us that we pray like Jesus. It's not a joy that we would be betrayed. It's a joy that when we are betrayed, there is no one else who will keep us no matter what like Jesus. So it's joy to pray in betrayal because we have one who will never leave us or forsake us. Um, It's a joy to pray through suffering because we have one who went before us and suffered to redeem our own suffering through his own suffering. It's a joy to pray through hardships and trial and the unknowns and the hours that might come because we have a Jesus who is life. So we're walking through it with life than without life. It's amazing what Jesus teaches and models here. Because otherwise, you know what happens in Christian circles is is we just leave services going, God, heal me. Why? Because I want to be healed, period. Right? Uh, God, will you, will you take away this bitterness and anger and resentment in my heart? Why? Because I'm sick of being angry and bitter, period. God, will you, will you heal this marriage, this relationship? Why? Ah, because it's just annoying and I just want him or her to be less frustrated and I just want to kind of exist in peace, period. God, would you take this pain away? Why? Because I just don't want to feel pain anymore, which is a good thing to pray, but period, that's where it stops. Rather than, I mean, take anything, lying. God, let me stop lying. Why? I just don't want to be a liar. I don't like people seeing me as a liar, period. 
rather than the way Jesus teaches us to pray as a pathway to joy, that God's name would be glorified. This shapes everything. May God, would you heal me so that people might see how good and sovereign and, and just you are, that you might use my life for the betterment of your name. And if you don't take away the pain, would you help me through the pain so they'll still see you as magnified and still see you as my treasure? May God, would you heal my marriage? Not just so this all gets, so they'll see your covenant love and they'll see that you're a God who never leaves his bride. Would you glorify your name through restoring and redeeming our marriage? Like, would you get me out of this addiction? Not just so that I stop being addicted to things and making a mess of my life, but so that people are drawn to a Christ who is exalted and gives freedom and deliverance and freedom from sin and addiction and shame and guilt and puts them on a right path to glorify your name too. Would you do that? Would you help me, Jesus, in all these ways? Why? So you'd be glorified. That's what you're praying. I feel like so many times we're missing the whole back end, which is everything in what we're asking. And it's the only place to put yourself, otherwise you're on a bankrupt prayer system. And you're always bitter and always resentful. And God, why didn't you do this? And why didn't you do this? Instead of, man, however you answer these things, I'm going to plead, I'm going to beg, I'm going to ask. At the end of the day, the lap is in the the hand of the Lord. You can do as you please. You're going to get glory in both of these ways. So help me to beg you to give glory through my life as a magnifier of you. And then you get true joy. And you get a place to sit, even if it's a place of weeping. You get a place to stand, even if it's a place where your knees are about to buckle. Like you're still on solid ground, though. You're not Jeremiah with with cisterns that hold no water. You're not trying to fill yourself with things that just have a hole in the bottom. When you got somewhere to go, you got a real savior to plead with. You got a real king that cares. No other belief system will say that to you, give you that. No other God is like that. Intimate. Meek, just, ferocious. So now, see, there is purpose. Now there's purpose in your prayers. Some of you guys know the story of our family. And without getting into details, this was everything for my wife and I. This was everything. Everything. Even if you don't, glorify your name. Show us what you're trying to do. I can't see ahead. The hour has come. I feel like more hours are coming. This was the only pathway out for us. Like this was the only, the only place to go. All of the places to go leave you with deeper aches and deeper pains and, and, and wounds that just keep growing. Like, man, we've... <laughs> I'm just begging you to, for the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to the goodness of God and the cross of Christ to put you on a path to see him as this. It's joy knowing that in pain and plight and trial, it can be redeemed in a way that glorifies God and encourages others and transforms us and humbles us and matures us, and there's great joy in that. Listen, not, friends, not one tear, not one moment is wasted. I don't know all your stories, but not one tear you've shed, not one moment of regret is wasted at all. Not one. Because God works all these things to culminate in the goodness and glory of his name. And God is with us, he's gone before us, and he will be glorified so we can be satisfied. All right, let's ask him for help. Jesus, we need the Holy Spirit of God to to continue to work in us and do the things that we can't do. We need your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and minds and 
and souls to the realities of your word. We need you to change us and mature us and grow us and humble us and sustain us. Father, I pray for those that are in uh, a deeply difficult season that uh, they would see Christ who is their eternal life, who is their pathway to joy, who has given them himself, that they might find a place to rejoice in that and be sustained in that and that, God, you be glorified through your work in them and in their families. God, thank you that, that you've promised us you so that at the end of the day, if we get nothing else but you, it's a win. Father, would you uh, bring to mind things that might need to be repented of, other idolatries and identities that we are leaning on outside of Christ that we believe is life when it is not? Would you free us from those things that entangle us, Hebrews 12, so that we might run the race marked out for us? Would you help us to confess sin where we need to confess sin? Would you help us to live in the light where we need to live in the light? And God, would you use this church and your church across nations and tribes and tongues to be a magnifier of your name, to bring glory to your name. As we come to the table, Lord, help us to be so mindful and so nourished that we have eternal life because blood was shed and a body was broken on our behalf, a substitute in our place to give us all of this freely because of you doing it for us. In Jesus' name, amen.